Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people do for love. So welcome to episode... 40. 40. Oh, I can't even say the it big for podcast. Four. <laughs> oh. Oh man, this feels sad. No, I'm just kidding. You know who else turned 40 this year? Who? Me. What? Yes. Oh, you're so it's old. happening. It's happening. Man, um, I can't believe you're even telling people. I know. I know. I should I not? Should I just celebrate in private? No, I think you should celebrate. It's a big <laughs> milestone. It's exciting. It's I was very depressed on my 40th birthday. Were you? Yes. I was like, this is not where I wanted to be in my life. Everything is awful. And then I it was fine. <laughs> I feel like I'm ready for it. Yeah. I'm ready for a like to be a for real adult because I still feel like a teenager, even though I'm 39 years old and I have a yeah. mother of two. <laughs> I still feel like a dumb idiot, but I'm ready to be a mature woman. Yeah. A woman. Yeah, I feel better about it now, but I was, yeah, the day, the, like, when it happened, when it happened to me, <laughs> I sound like Where were you the day <laughs> it happened? I feel like there are some of our younger listeners are just like, Ew. Gross. I know. <laughs> enjoy uh, it now. Enjoy it now. Yep. You're going to get old too. It happens. It happens. I know. Uh, should we get into our quickies? Yeah. Let's do it. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. I'm first for the quickies. You are. Make it good. Let me. Oh, no. <laughs> so much pressure. Jen, let me ask you a question. Uh huh. Have you ever been the recipient of a random act of kindness? Besides, like, somebody holding the door open, like, yeah. nothing, not anything like the guy in front of me paid for my Starbucks or yeah. anything like that. No. Yeah, yeah when well, we not were... Not yet. Not yet. It, it's going to happen for you. <laughs> I believe in the universe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when we were hiking the Appalachian Trail, people are just so nice. I mean, there were so, so many people helped us out. So many people would just, like, buy us lunch because they would see these hikers across, and we probably looked so pathetic and dirty and tired, and... Uh, so many people just like gave us rides and That's people so did. Cool. Yeah, there's this thing on the trail called trail magic where people just leave like food or coolers of beer in a stream and you just are walking by and all of a sudden you're like, oh, a soda and or like a, you know, a Kit Kat. Amazing. And oh it's my just God, like the best crazy. thing ever. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So and it's usually like people who've hiked before will go back. Like Ben and I have done that when we've been near. We've like left coolers of um, drinks and beers and stuff. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. So I love that. But so, okay. So my story is about a random act of kindness. Okay. So bartender uh, Charlie Pavermo was beloved in his community. He lived in Milford, New Jersey. And in 2011, Charlie noticed that the garbage men were looking like exhausted. It was a very hot day. And so he brought them into the shade of his home and he gave them some water. And after that, he started putting out a cooler every day of his house filled with ice, bottled water, orange juice, and Gatorade. And every summer for eight years, the cooler would be on the street every day of the week. And he would invite anyone to stop by. And so like the trash collectors, firefighters, police officers, and construction workers all would come and take advantage of his kindness. Um, And I say that take advantage, but that all... 
rude. And they all took advantage of him. They would steal it. No. They would just drink the soda. <laughs> the sodas that he left for them. But then on in March of 2018, Charlie died suddenly of a heart Aww. attack at age 57. That's young. It is young. Oh, but no. his widow, Velvet, made sure to continue his tradition. And so even though she was grieving, she put out a cooler with drinks and treats along with a photo of Charlie and a sign Aww. that said, in case you weren't aware, my husband Charlie passed away suddenly on March 10th. I will do my best to continue to provide bottled water. And Velvet posted about Charlie on Facebook. and She just wanted to highlight how kind he was and people from New Jersey to Wyoming started putting out their own coolers in honor of Charlie. Oh. And Velvet says, it was just like Charlie to inspire such kindness. She says, I was married to Charlie for 37 years and although he's not right here beside me, we are still and always will be married and he continues to amaze me and still has a way of bringing a smile to my face and joy to my life. Oh my God, I love that. Isn't that so nice? That's amazing. Does it make you want to put out a cooler? It does. Yeah. I think I will. All right, let's do it. I think I will. (laughs) I came across this article. It actually happened. This was from February 10th of 2019, but it was an article for BBC.com. And it actually doesn't say who wrote it. Nobody wants to take responsibility for this. But this article was about a woman who was so in love with her duvet cover. Uh Uh-huh. That she decided to marry it. Oh, man. So <laughs> she's an artist. Uh-huh. Um, so the she says that the ceremony was in order to promote self-love and self-care. Okay. And it was like before Valentine's Day of last year. But Pascal Selleck, who's 49 years old, uh, wore her slippers and pajamas as she committed to the most, quote unquote, intimate and reliable relationship she had ever had 120 people attended the ceremony in exeter where anyone was welcome as long as they wore bedroom attire so it was a pajama party wedding okay all right pretty nice 120 people maybe we should marry our podcast and we can get some people out to a show (laughs) (laughs) maybe we should let's marry our podcast She, she actually has a long-term human boyfriend named Johnny, but she hasn't decided yet if she was going to change her surname. Mm-hmm. So according to the wedding register, the duvet's surname was Ten Tog, like Ten T-O-G. I Ten guess, Tog. I don't know what language. Maybe that was the brand? Says. Maybe, maybe that's it. Um, but this duvet cover wore an outfit, which was secret until the big day, and it featured slogans such as "Duvet, I love you" and "Be unique." Um, so the Devon-based artist said that her big day was inspired by friend and fellow artist Anna Fitzgerald, who she hired to be her wedding planner. There were other performers, or other performers, played the roles of. So I guess this was all just like one right. big artist. Like again, I'm starting to like it more than I care. Yeah, I think it's pretty funny. Serious thing. This is just for fun. I want to hang out with her. Yeah. Um, So other performers played the roles of mother of the duvet (laughs) and mother (laughs) of the bride. And um, while an element of audience participation was involved during the vows, when the duvet remained (laughs) tight-lipped. So I guess you know that was where it ended in 2019 i hope that they're still married and very much in love with each other but the bride looks stunning and beautiful and very much in love and i can't (laughs) wait to post pictures i can't wait she's actually holding a heart pillow that says uh, it definitely looks like crafted it looks like something that i 
could have made um, that says, I love my duvet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's my quiggy. All right. I love it. I love it. Jen. Sally. It's time for a crazy story. Hell yeah, it is. Hell yeah, it is. Hell yeah, it is. And this is a crazy story. All right. So I got my information from a awesome article in Women's Day. Woman's Day, not women's, just one woman. One woman's day. Woman's Day. Uh, also an oxygen oxygen show called Three Days to Live. Ooh. Have you heard of it? No. Oh, it seems right up your alley. <laughs> wow. So it's a well, I'll tell you about it later. Okay. okay. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you about it later. <laughs> Remind me. And then an article in a website called MyRacineCounty.com by Kathy Kozlowitz. Got it. Okay, so this is a story of Terry Jindusa Nikolai. Do I you know her. I don't know this. Okay. So it wasn't long after Terry Jindusa married David Larson in 1996 that he started to show his true personality. He was incredibly controlling. He started doing things like yelling at her if like a window curtain was out of place or if the towels weren't folded to the way he wanted them to be. He wouldn't let her out of his sight. He like made her keep the door open while she was showering or using the bathroom. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean... I do that too, but Ben does not like it. (laughs) (laughs) He had installed locks on the inside of the doors that only he had the key to so that he could lock her inside the house. Holy shit. Uh, He didn't allow her to work. He didn't allow her to have credit cards in her name. So this was not just like, oh, he's kind of controlling friend. Like this is like... He was a psychopath. He was a psychopath. He was abusive. He was physically, he was verbally abusive. One night they got in a fight over spaghetti noodles. She was making dinner and had the ingredients on the counter. And he was like, those noodles are going to go bad if you leave them out. And she was like... They're dried spaghetti noodles. And he was like, it doesn't matter whether I make sense or not. I am the boss here. And the argument got so out of hand that she found herself running down into the basement and hiding because she couldn't leave because all the doors were locked. Oh, this just makes my skin crawl already. Yeah. And so she was like, I'm 30 years old. I'm sitting in a box in my basement hiding from my husband. Like, what is going on? And she said she attempted to leave him on a couple of a couple of occasions, but the problem was they had two young daughters, uh. a baby and a two-year-old. And he would tell her, kids from broken homes commit suicide. He was just crazy. So Terry was afraid, though she started to become afraid that he was eventually abused them too. Mm-hmm. One time during a fight, he was screaming at her and their two-year-old was cowering under a table and Aww. he started yelling at the daughter And Terry, that night, she was like, this is it. So she called her brother and she left David for good. And she took the girls. She went to, at first, to live in a shelter. She said she was in fear of her life. But but then despite David's opposition, they eventually did get a divorce in 2001. So she did successfully leave him. But on the day of the divorce, David told her, you're going to regret this. Oh, my God. So Terry and David were in a fight for custody of the two girls, and Terry was trying to get full custody, worrying that David would hurt the kids, but the courts were like, oh, but here's a father who wants to be involved. And so they allowed him visitation rights. Oh my God. And David continued to verbally and physically assault Terry when they would exchange the kids. And Terry started asking that they exchange the kids in public places, like meet me at the McDonald's, meet me wherever. So... She actually, when during these exchanges, she had to call the police two times and eventually she got a restraining order against David. 
And But even though she was going through this horrible custody battles in the three years after her divorce, Terry had met and married a lovely man named Nick Nikolai. And they had recently learned that Terry was pregnant. Their marriage, which was three months earlier, sat like set David off like he told Terry that in his eyes and then the eyes of God they were still married oh my god he was still living in their house and had help uh held on to all sorts of like stuff from their marriage like he had her wedding dress he had photo albums he had video footage and he would show them to the girls as proof that mommy doesn't keep her promises oh my god this makes me sick and like just the idea of having I couldn't imagine having to turn my kids over oh, I know. on a regular basis to somebody that was doing this shit. So he had turned into he had turned into a hoarder and he had boxes like in the house just like stacked from like floor to ceiling. And so three years to the day of their divorce, on January thirty first, two thousand four, Terry was set to pick up the girls from David's house. Um, they lived in Racine, Wisconsin. And so even though she had the restraining order and even though she always tried to meet him at public places, many times David would refuse to do that and would insist that Terry came to his house. And she often, she would ask like her husband Nick or a friend to come with her. But on this day, she was alone because she basically was like, this is, this is our life now and I can't always have somebody with me. And I think David had been pretty quiet recently. And so she thought, okay, maybe. That's always. Right? The calm before the storm. Yep. So she got there and David told her that the girls were playing hide and seek and that they wanted Terry to find them. And something told her she shouldn't go in the house, but she just didn't want to start a fight with David because he was so on edge about everything. And she didn't want to disappoint her kids. So she walked inside the house. Three hours later, when Terry hadn't returned with the kids, her husband Nick called 911. And he told them that he was worried about his wife and the children and that she had gone to her abusive ex-husband's house. And when he gave them the address, the 911 operator recognized the address because hours earlier, they had gotten a call from a woman who couldn't breathe. She was seemed out of breath and she hadn't really been able to talk much, but she did give them an address and it was the same address as Nick had just given them. Oh my gosh. And so when that first call came in, deputies had actually gone to David's house thinking maybe there was a woman having a heart attack or something because it just seemed like she just seemed out of breath and they had no idea what they were walking into. And they actually went into the house, but it was empty. There was nobody there. Oh my God. So now with Nick's call, deputies go back to the house with the knowledge that both Terry and her children are missing. And they started questioning neighbors. And one of them said they'd actually seen David towing Terry's car away earlier that day. (gasps) Oh, my God. So as they're searching, a third 911 call came in. And it was Terry. And she's again struggling to talk. And it seemed in and out of consciousness. But she was able to give operators her name tell them that her ex-husband was trying to kill her and said that she was in the back of his green pickup truck. Oh my God. So detectives are at David's house and they're searching because she didn't mention the girls. Their name was Holly and Amanda. And so they were like, maybe the girls are here. This house is, I mean, it's so full of stuff that it was like hard to see hard anything. To see anything. Uh-huh. So they're searching everywhere, looking under, you know, in cabinets, anywhere that little girls might hide or be, or they thought, you know, these girls might be dead. Oh, so God. 
They didn't find the girls, but they did find an empty handgun case, a large blood stain on the carpet, and a pair of black sweatpants. And the sweatpants had duct tape around the ankles, and they actually matched the description of what Nick said Terry had been wearing. Oh, no. And this was January in Racine, Wisconsin, so it was a freezing day. So they're like, she's out somewhere. She has on no pants. Obviously, they took it very serious. So almost 100 police set out in various directions to follow all these different leads. So they they searched the neighborhoods surrounding the home. People were going into basements, um, a neighborhood being where houses were being built. And so they searched all of these houses. A detective found in a filing cabinet at David's house a deed to a property that he owned in Milwaukee. So police went there. They actually, they pinged his cell phone and it showed that he had been in Milwaukee. And so when they got to this property that he owned, he wasn't there, but they did find Terry's car. And so Milwaukee police feared the worst. They opened the trunk of the car, but thankfully there was no sign of Terry or of the kids. So other officers went to David's workplace and he worked as an air traffic controller at a small airport, which was just over the state line in Illinois. And then hours after this ordeal had began, David Larson shows up for his shift at work like nothing had happened. Oh my God. So police approach him carefully and they tell him, oh, you know, they're they're friendly and they say, your ex-wife is missing and your kids are missing. Could you come down to the station and help us? And he was like, yeah, of course. Oh my gosh, I'm so worried. He was cooperative. He tells them, you know what? Terry never showed up to pick up our kids. So I actually dropped them off at my girlfriend's house. So police race to the girlfriend's house and they're relieved to find that both girls are there. Thank God. They're safe. They hadn't seen their mom at all the whole day, but they also told police that as they often were, they were locked in a back bedroom of their dad's house with no food or water for a long time that day. Oh my God. I know. That's the saddest thing that's going to happen to the kids, I promise. Okay. Okay. Good. Okay. Jeez. So at the station, detectives questioned David and... When they confronted him with what they knew, the phone calls, the blood, the sweatpants at his house, David got really agitated. And then he told them, well, actually, Terry had been there, but she had attacked him and that he had responded in self-defense. And then he says everything after that was a blur. So he gives them no other information. And they are questioning him for like six hours. So him saying that, everything was a blur, she attacked him, um, was enough for police to officially arrest David, which means they could take his personal possessions, including his wallet. And then in the wallet, they found a card for a storage facility near his property in Milwaukee. So they called the storage facility and the people at the facility said that he had been there that morning. It was now almost 20 hours after Terry was supposed to pick up her kids It was the middle of the night. Detectives said the air was so cold that it was hard to breathe, and they enter the storage unit. They didn't see Terry. Oh, no. But as they look around, they found two things that stuck out. They found a baseball bat with what appeared to be blood on it and a large rubber-made garbage can with the lid duct tape shut. So they quickly remove everything from the top of the can. They peel off the tape, and inside was Terry, Jindusa Nikolai. She was folded up in the fetal position, her eyes were completely swollen. Her face was black and blue. Her toes and feet were completely black from frostbite. But she was alive. Hell yeah. Thank God. 
So paramedics rushed Terry to the hospital, and when she got there, her body temperature was 86 degrees, and doctors said she was within an hour of death. Oh, my God. Her skull was crushed. She had severe hypothermia, and she had suffered a miscarriage. But she survived. Because of the frostbite, all of her toes had to be amputated. But after 10 operations and nearly seven weeks in the hospital, Terry went home with her husband, Nick, and her two daughters. And David was arrested, and on August 16th, 2005, he was sentenced to 35 years in prison. So Terry says that on the day of the, the attack, she all she remembers is walking in the house and hearing a clunk. And David had hit her with that baseball bat, oh, and he hit geez. her again and again, and then he stuffed her in that garbage can, which was full of snow, <gasps> and she had on no pants or socks, and he was so confident he was such like a controlling person he didn't even check her pockets and so that's how she found that's how she phone. had her, yeah she had her phone in her pocket and so that's how she managed to call 911 even though her wrists were bound and oh, so eventually he came to the back of the car and found her phone and took it but she felt him roll her out of the car and then it was just darkness and silence And she said that when she was left to die in the storage unit, her thoughts turned to her family. And she said, if you have kids or someone you want to stay alive for, that's enough. She checked to see if David was was around by calling his name. And when he didn't answer, she started screaming for help. And she says she barely remembers the ride to the hospital. But when she was in the ICU and conscious, her first question was, where are my girls? So since that attack, Terry has become an advocate for survivors of domestic violence She has been instrumental in helping to draft laws that protect domestic violence victims like Wisconsin's SAFE Act, which takes guns out of the hands of abusers. And so Terry had gotten this restraining order. And so under the law, David was supposed to give up his guns, but police officers... Never enforced it. They didn't enforce it. And there was something about like they couldn't enforce it without a search warrant because she said he has guns, but she had no proof that he had guns. Right. So this actually gives police officers... Officers? <laughs> yeah, I was doing so well. <laughs> police officers more power to take guns when somebody has a restraining order. Good. Um, she also helped pass Marcy's Law, which gives victims constitutional rights. She speaks at colleges, high schools, churches, and other groups across the country. And she said that the experience has led me to a life of service. A few years after the abduction, Terry and Nick welcomed a son who's now almost 13. And he's a sweet little brother to Holly and Amanda, who are now 20 and 22. Wow. Isn't that a crazy story? It is. Oh, my God. I'm so glad she's okay. I know. Oh, my God. Yeah. So she's a badass. She is a badass. That's uh, and she's hero. Yeah, and she speaks everywhere. She's done so much, and it just is amazing to me that you know somebody like that who could just like has every right to just be like, "Fuck this! I'm gonna live my life and just live my life. I have yeah. a life, you know." Um, but she is now dedicated it to helping other people, and so that that's is the amazing. story of the badass Terry Jindusa Nikolai. Hell yeah! Oh my god, she's amazing, yeah. amazing, amazing. And so that that oxygen show, three days to live, three days is like the amount of time that when people are abducted, that they generally have, like after seventy two hours, their chances of being found alive go down. And so this is all story about women who have survived that 72 hours. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I got to check it out for sure. Yeah. Hey guys, we have a Patreon now and we want you to join because 
we need you. We need a, we need some support, and we would love to give you guys some extra fun content that we can't do just on our weekly podcast. So yes. Um. So I'm just gonna tell you guys. You know, you guys know how Patreon works. You find us at Dumb Love Podcast on Patreon. And we have three levels. Um, so for $3 a month, you, that is our quickie level, um, you get 20% off of all dumb love merchandise. You also get like a sneak peek of our new stuff. We're going to have some new fun stuff coming out soon. And you also get one extra quickie episode each month. So that means you'll get, we'll both do quickies. It'll be a fun, it'll be a shorter episode, but it'll be a fun Patreon exclusive episode. And then if you join our crazy level, which is $6 a month, you you get that, plus you get behind the scenes photos and videos from our recordings and then also from stuff that we're doing in our lives, a monthly dumb love advice video. So we're going to be taking questions like dumb love, love advice and Jen and I will give you some dumb answers. And then you also get a personal thank you note that I'm sure Jen will write because she's real good at that. And then for $10 a month, you get all of those things plus... There's more. There's uh, more? Yeah, you're going to get a monthly AMA, so you can ask us any questions you want, and and we'll do a video of that. And then you'll also get some exclusive Dumb Love Level swag. That's what, that's what their patron's about. So join up. It would really be helpful to us. Help us keep the podcast going and kind of support. You know, there are a lot of fees and stuff that go along with podcasting, and that would help cover those kind of things. Because we want to do this for forever. Yeah, because we if really love doing us, this. If you you'll guys, have us. If you'll have us, and we promise to make it worth your money, and because we would really appreciate it, and we're gonna do some fun stuff. Yeah. So, okay. Hey, Sally. Yes, Jen. Are you ready for a love story? Oh, I would love a love story. Okay, this is a super important, very important love story that I've been stressing out about all week because I want to make sure that I get it right. Yeah. Because it's really important. And there's so much information on it. Um, most of my information came from an article uh, from Medium.com written by Jeffrey Iavanoni, mm-hmm. um, a Washington Post article written by Joyce Murdoch, an article for Minnesota Lawyer written by Benjamin Kwan, and a really, really great article written by the website The Queer Historian. All right. So this is the love story of Karen Thompson and Sharon Kowalski. What if you were like, this is the love story of Jessica Simpson. (laughs) (laughs) And her husband. Eric something? Eric something. (laughs) It's important, Eric football guy. (laughs) It's very important. No. This is the love story of Karen Thompson and Sharon Kowalski. Okay. I'm excited to hear it. Sharon Kowalski was a star athlete all through high school and college. Uh, She ran track. She threw discus. She played softball, volleyball, golf, basketball. She loved it all. She also... Uh, also rode a motorcycle and she loved camping. Dang, she sounds cool. I know. She was real cool or is real cool. She started going to St. Cloud State University in Minnesota in 1975. She quickly fell for her physical education professor named Karen Thompson. Okay. And Karen would later work with her because Sharon was the assistant coach of the women's track team. Mm-hmm. They soon became lovers and when... Karen left Minnesota to get a PhD at Ohio State. Sharon would come visit her often. Mm -hmm. 
And so in 1979, they finally moved in together in Clearwater. Um, so they had a secret commitment ceremony where they exchanged rings and made each other the beneficiaries of their insurance policies, yeah. which was the closest thing that you could get to marriage back then. Same-sex marriage wouldn't become legal in Minnesota until 2013. But even though that they had the ceremony and they were married, Sharon and Karen were forced to stay closeted for many years. Right. Uh, for a lot of reasons, including Sharon's position as the high school PE teacher and her Catholic parents. Right. And so everything was great, and they lived together, wife and wife, Mm -hmm. happily. But then four years later, on the afternoon of November 13th, 1983, at the age of 27, Sharon was in the car after a Sunday outing with her niece and nephew when a drunk driver slammed into her car with his pickup truck. Oh, Her niece died instantly, and her nephew was banged up but survived, but Sharon was badly injured and rushed to the hospital. Karen, of course, was extremely upset, and it took hours to try to find out information about her wife. You know, the hospital refused to give her any information because they weren't technically related. Right. Um, So, But when Sharon's parents finally got there, Karen learned that her partner um, was in a coma, and she had suffered serious brain injur- injuries and would be a quadriplegic if she even survived. Oh, my gosh. I know. So Karen, because she was trained in physical and occupational therapy, she knew right away to get the house accessible for Sharon. Yeah. And so she installed a ramp at her house for Sharon's wheelchair and got a Hoyer lift to help move Sharon from her wheelchair to the bed. Uh-huh. She was ready to take anything on right she even made an alphabet board to help share and form basic sentences but even though she did all of this work her parents didn't want to recognize her as, as a, a family member or a spouse yeah Ugh. they thought that she was just a friend and a landlady they soon became like suspicious of her frequent visits and she felt that they were like cold towards her yeah Donald Kowalski, her father, ended up feeling really uncomfortable, and so he ordered Karen to spend less time at the hospital. So Karen was very upset by this, and that they, on the advice of a hospital psychologist, they said you should let her parents know who you that you guys were married. You right. know, you should tell them. So Karen went on and wrote a letter explaining to the family, explaining their relationship and that they were a couple and that they were married. And they were just completely aghast and refused to believe that their daughter was a lesbian. Apparently, the next time that she saw, Karen saw Donald at the hospital, Mm -hmm. he was shaky and red-faced and screamed in her face, like, my daughter is not a lesbian, in the same room that Sharon was sitting there. And so Sharon, you know, witnessed all of this. And, And Sharon's mother, Della, apparently physically attacked Karen, clawing at her and pinning her against a wall. Like, they just couldn't believe that she would even say these things. Right. And so, so, sorry, Sharon is in a coma at this point. So she was in a coma. And then when she came out of the coma, she could only communicate through the alphabet board that she had made for her. 
Donald immediately ordered that her visits had to stop completely. And he eventually gained the legal authority to back up this demand. You know, I'm her father and she's right. not allowed here. Oh, so, so sad. Yeah. Donald obviously was very, very homophobic. He had said, on the farm and in the army, we call them queers and fruits, not gays and lesbians. And he said that there ain't a law in the United States that allows a lesbian relationship. So it was pretty awful. Yeah. I was feeling very sympathetic towards her parents at first. I'm like, well, they didn't know. Like, you can understand, like, oh, who is this person who is, if you think it's a landlady? But yeah, now now that they know and they're still being horrible. Yeah. It's like their daughter was in a tragic accident and that's... Awful. And all like Karen wanted to do is care for her. She right. only and that's where things clashed too. Was that Karen wanted intensive rehabilitation mm-hmm. that and wanted to find people that focused on brain injuries. Where um, the Kowalskis just placed Sharon in a nursing home and was just like, <sighs> just let her be, just leave her alone. And he, Donald Kowalski said, uh, "What the hell does it make a difference if she's gay or lesbian or straight or anything? Because she's laying there in diapers. Just let the poor kid rest in peace." And Karen said, "That's exactly what she had no intention of doing." She says, "I cannot condemn a 32-year-old woman to live the rest of her life in a nursing home. She's being held a virtual prisoner in an institution for not being allowed to see people she and not being allowed to see people she'd like to see." Yeah. So because they stopped the visita- visitations, and so they just like left her in this nursing home. To to rot essentially right and Sharon you know she loved the outdoors and riding her bike and she like her motorcycle and she was by all accounts an independent-minded woman right um and so though some of the therapists said that she had um which her parents believed to be true that she only had the mental capacity of a four to six year old and her speech was limited limited Sharon could definitely communicate via typing short messages on a keyboard so there was definitely evidence to show she did have mental capacity to be able to speak for herself four to six year old my kid's four and he has his own mind like you know like that's a I know she's a person yeah. yeah They went to court to determine who had the right to make decisions for her. And on July 23rd, 1985, the du- the judge said that because Karen outed Sharon, that she wasn't thinking of Sharon's best interest and ruled that Kowalski family should be granted guardianship of their daughter. And within days, Donald Kowalski placed his daughter in the nursing home. And in this nursing home, no attempt was ever made to give Sharon rehabilitation therapy. And she would barely even be looked at like so and so Karen was allowed to visit but only during the times that the Kowalski family would not be there yeah the court ordered that she could have her visitation rights Donald Kowalski actually terminated her visitation within 24 hours of the court's decision saying that he believed that Karen would sexually abuse uh, (gasps) might sexually abuse Sharon they argued that Sharon had never told them that she was a lesbian before. Yeah, because you're that horrible people. She was using, she made up the fa- the nature of their relationship in order to prey upon their now vulnerable daughter. And it's just so fucked up because it's like they turn everything into a sexual predatory. Yeah. It's so homophobic. If this were a man and a woman, she A, they would have been legally married and none of this would have been an issue. But if it were a man saying that he was in love and wanted to take care of his wife or yeah. um, or even a, his partner, you know, this 
would never be an issue. Right. So before Karen was making a six hour round trip drive several times a week for about a year to visit her. But then after Donald started saying that the nature of her visits were predatory, Mm -hmm. then she was completely cut off for three full years. Oh my God. And, And Karen said, I spent four years hiding their relation." their relationship and then four and a half years trying to prove it yeah even though she was cut off completely she this did not stop her she was determined to get her back home and sharon typed on the alphabet board that karen had made her that she said i thought she left me so this whole three years while karen was fighting to get her back under her care sharon just thought like she was just abandoned and i'm sure that her parents like reinforce that was like well she's gone oh yeah why would you even want to be with this person well and apparently they barely even visited of course and so the next thing that karen tried to do was petition the courts to to find donald um in contempt because he terminated her visitation rights Mm -hmm. and the minnesota district court and later the court of appeals both upheld donald kowalski's garden guardianship and his right to deny visitation so then three years Later, in 1988, Donald Kowalski was having health problems. He had suffered multiple heart attacks. And her mother, Della, was suffering from severe depression. So they decided to relinquish the guardianship of their daughter, but not over to Karen. Instead, they chose just like this friend of the family who was a Sharon's high school track and discus coach, Karen Toberlin, to make decisions on behalf of uh, Sharon. Yeah, and so Toberlin was a married woman with four children of her own. And she could make no promises to do more than just occasionally visit her. And that was, and but they were like, that's fine, you know. Right. You know, just visit her whenever you can. Rather than her wife, this person that's been fighting for her, that wants to be there every single day with her and take care of her and care for her. They chose this other woman instead. having that much hate in your heart that you would go through all this trouble to cut your daughter off from her wife? Like, it's just so mind-boggling. It's like... You just, it's so much effort to be that hateful. I know. And Minnesota has a required evaluation to where you're supposed to, every six to 12 months for someone in Sharon's condition, mm-hmm. they need to be evaluated to see what their progress is, their mental capacity. Um, that's supposed to happen every six to 12 months, but they hadn't had her tested in five years. Oh, jeez. So... Karen took to the courts and brought that information up. Karen's petition to have Sharon formally evaluated was granted, and Sharon was moved to the Miller Dawn Medical Center in Duluth. So their medical team then found that Sharon Kowalski was capable of understanding and communicating and had not been receiving the rehabilitative care that she desperately needed. Mm. And the doctors also recommended that Sharon be allowed visitors of her choosing, especially Karen Thompson saying that whenever she visited it would it greatly influenced her mental health and rehabilitation yeah so this was huge not only for gay rights activists but also disability rights activists all rallied together behind thompson's case and organized a national freeze chair and kowalski day on august 7th of 1988 which was the sunday before sharon's 32nd birthday And so processions and vigils were held in 21 cities across the United States, including Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C. And at the events, crowds would rally behind the slogan, why can't Sharon Kowalski come home? Yeah. And so um, it 
brought about national publicity for her case and um she was um and then karen was ultimately turned into an activist and she would speak at great gay pride and feminist events and rallies across the country using her story as a way to raise awareness of the pervasive discriminations that gays and lesbians face Mm -hmm. particularly particularly with the medical establishment and the law. Yeah. So this went on for years. Mm-hmm. And so while she was on the national speaker circuit, Karen actually reconnected with an old friend named Patty Besser, who was like an old family and friend back from early 80s. And so they worked together to try to get the, these laws changed. And through that process, they actually fell in love, which Karen says was one of the hardest things that she ever did dealt with was falling in love with this other woman but Sharon was there for all of it and Sharon supported it and Sharon supported their relationship and Patty Besser said I knew that they were a package deal you know that that Karen and Sharon came together and I loved Karen and I wanted to support her love for Sharon so they all worked together and they said we decided that we were going to do this we were going to work in earnest to get Sharon home yeah and so finally in 1991 the Minnesota Court of Appeals in re-guardianship of Kowalski, reversed the decision and granted guardianship to Thompson, citing expert testimony that attested to both Thompson's fitness to act as guardian and Sharon's preference. Yeah. So Sharon didn't really have short-term memory, Mm -hmm. but she was able to speak through her keyboard and through her gestures. And when they interviewed her, and this was even back in 1985 when they interviewed her, they asked her, are you gay? And with and she typed with her finger, yes. And she said, do you have a lover? And if yes, what is that person's name? And she answered, Karen T. Yeah. So she she said, this is, you know, my right. wife. The court found that Thompson and Sharon are a family of affinity, which ought to be accorded respect. And with that, the judge reversed Judge Campbell's decision. And Sharon Kowalski was finally able to go home and receive the care she desperately needed with Karen Thompson. For the last 20 five years Sharon lived at home with Karen and Patty Besser yeah and so they took very good care of her but now you know she's in her 60s she's becoming more fragile and she needs like a feeding tube every two hours Mm -hmm. and she needs to be turned every two and a half hours ideally without waking her so Sharon Kowalski now lives in an adult adult foster care program but she still comes home every couple of weeks for what they call spa day. Yeah. Um, they, they pick her up and they take her to Fantastic Sam's for a haircut. And then they get her an hour-long professional massage and a whirlpool bath. And they said Sharon loves to go on vacation. She loves to travel. The, this past article, this was written in 2018, but they said this Saturday, Sharon, Karen, and Patty all hit the road for Branson, Missouri, and then took in a few shows and they celebrated Sharon's 67th birthday. Their fight to get Sharon home has ended. They Mm -hmm. haven't stopped fighting for other queer and disabled people in the United States. They continue to this day to fight for the rights of, especially when it comes to um, accessibility and education on advanced care planning for queer and disabled families. It's an amazing story. I love it. That's why I wanted to make sure that I did it correctly. I think you did an awesome job. Okay, I hope so. But yeah, they're amazing women. And I just think that that's like such an amazing love story because it's not only 
Sharon and Karen's love, but then also Patty's yeah. love for them and that just accepting like, okay, this is, it's our, all of our fight and we can have yeah. like, this is a lifetime commitment to both of these people. And that's so beautiful. And all three of them just put their own norms aside to make sure that the other person that the person that they loved were, was happy. Yeah. Sharon just wanted Karen to be happy and Karen um, still takes care of Sharon to this day and Patty was like, I knew you were in love with Sharon and you're going to be with her yeah. for the rest of your life and and I love you and I love, you know, what you're doing. And you know what? I just think it's just such a beautiful story about love. That is a beautiful story. I love that. Good. So Thanks. Good. All right, let's do something dumb and something we love. Sounds great. I'll go first. You go first. I'll do it. I'm gonna. Thank you for taking one. <laughs> okay, so my something dumb is, it's been a, probably a couple weeks now because we're pre-recording this, but I'm just really sad that there are no women left in the presidential race. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and it's just, I'm just tired of voting for old white men. I'm tired of it. I want a woman to be our president, and I'm just really sad. I didn't realize how sad I was going to be until Elizabeth Warren dropped out, and then I was like, And just, like, how capable and qualified she is. It's just unreal. I mean, all of the women um, who are in the race. Yeah, I mean... It just made me very sad. If she were a man, she would be Democratic candidate, for sure. For sure. So, anyway, so that's that's me. That's dumb. That's real dumb. But something I love... Is uh, pretzels. Pretzels. I love <laughs> pretzels so much. This is why women can be president, Sally. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We definitely and can. I love pretzels and periods. Um, <laughs> no, I'm. Uh, I love my brother. I'm so proud of him Aww. and so excited for him. He just moved into a new place, and this is my brother Damien, who took care of my mom and lived with my mom uh, for the last several years, and. You know, so it's been such a crazy time for him. He's like had to kind of shut down our house yeah. and get, you know, move all the stuff. And he's finally moved into a new place and has his own space. And I'm just like really excited for him. And I'm just so amazed by how he has like handled everything. Uh-huh. I mean, before my mom died and now after. Yeah. And it's just, um, so yeah, I'm just, I love that. And I'm just really, I'm filled with love and pride for him. That's awesome. Yeah. I am too. Yeah. For him. That's awesome. I'm happy to see what all of that lives, lies before him. Mm-hmm. Me you too. You know, the new place. Yeah. Starting new. Good for him. Go get it, Damien. Yeah. Go get it, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, yours is sweet. Yeah. Is yours, is um, yours mean? Well, <laughs> I was going to say my something dumb was coronavirus. I think we could all agree that the coronavirus is very dumb. Very dumb. I Something that's dumb, something that happened recently, which I guess, you know, we pre-record, so it would have been a couple of weeks ago. I had a show... And every comedian goes through these moments where you're just like, what is it all for? What am I doing? What is this life? And I had a set where like there were these two guys in the front row and they were writing 
notes to each other and sometimes people will come and scout and they'll try to steal your jokes or who knows why these two men were like writing or maybe they were just like she's fat and then like (laughs) showing it to each other and so it just really threw me and then when I left the stage I was like that felt gross and then I went and was watching in the wings while uh, Matthew English who's lovely and amazing and so funny yeah he's he had an amazing set he was so great and like the guys were like yes but like like (laughs) hands in the air for him and writing and uh writing all over their pad and I was just like like they want like I'll I'll never be what people are looking for is how I felt and I was just like I'm just you know just this like old lady and you know blah blah blah. (laughs) and uh, Matthew's so like young and attractive and hot and like and funny so funny so good and so I uh was just like I just left feeling like just feeling defeated and like nobody's ever gonna right scout me or want me blah 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 and then I felt like shit but the so that's the dumb but then the something that is so awesome is like just a like I think it was like two days later I get an email from the booker of that show someone from the audience had emailed him asking like what is that woman's name she was really funny she had us dying and I was like oh my god thank you so much for sending this to me because I felt like so shitty after that set and then they both both of the women friended me on Instagram. I just want to say uh, their names are Mary and Lily. I don't know if I got a new if we got a new listener out of that set or anything. So Mary and Lily, if you're listening, just you guys reaching out to me after that set. Yeah, you have no idea like how much that meant to me and how it like is keeping me going in like a time where I was just like, should I just stop? Just you know? And, and so I really, 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 really appreciate that. You guys yeah. are amazing. And also happy birthday. Cause apparently it was Lily's birthday. So happy birthday. You guys are amazing. Thank you for, um, thank you for reaching out. Yeah. And it is such like a good reminder for me too, that when you see somebody, an artist or a comedian or a whatever, a band, somebody in a band, and you like what they're doing, like, hey, reach out. Because you never know what it's going to do for them on that yeah. day. Because everybody goes through, it's like, no matter how confident and funny and whatever, yeah. like, once somebody walks off a stage, they're like filled with self-doubt. Was that funny? I don't know. Was it? You know, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. you can crush and still be like, oh, it's still, but people aren't they were laughing because whatever, you know, not me. But just the fact that they took the time to send an email, it was huge. Yeah, that is huge. Cause so do that for people. I, yeah. Thank you guys so much. And uh, thank you guys, listeners, because whenever you guys rate and review us, we feel that special too. We do feel special. Follow us on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, which is at Dumb Love Podcast. Send us an email at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Join our new Patreon and have a great week. And get out there and go do something dumb for love. Dum